Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. One of my favorite records in the world is Fever to Tell by the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs. The way Karen O oh shrieks and sings and howls her way through the album and then lands on the perfection of maps, only to come hurtling out of it again on Y Control, incredible. But I can't really tell you why this record, above all others, spoke to me when I first heard it as a teenager in the D.C. suburbs, or why I totally lost it when I saw myself mirrored on stage at the 930 Club. Why the yeah, yeah, yes? Why not some other rock band from the early 2000s? That's why I was so excited when the new book, This Is What It Sounds Like, by Susan Rogers and Ogie Ogus, came across my desk. Rogers is a cognitive neuroscientist and a professor at Berklee College of Music. But before that, she was Prince's chief engineer for his 1984 album, Purple Rain. And she remains one of the most successful female record producers of all time. Rogers has spent decades learning to listen. And this is what it sounds like is a primer for understanding the concept of our innate listener profile the dimensions of a song that our brain responds to. Susan Rogers joins us with an invitation to tune into our musical self-awareness, into the music that makes us feel most like ourselves, whoever we are. And on a selfish note, I'm hoping she'll also give me the vocabulary I need to explain why I love Karen O. Besides, she's a badass. (laughs) Thanks so much for talking to me, Susan. Thank you for having me on the show. I'm really happy to have this conversation with you. So I want to start first with um, with your story, like how you made it as a record producer, because even in 2022, there are so few female record producers working. It's probably not as bad as when you first started when you could only count working women producers on one hand, but it's not that much better. <laughs> And that would be a hand that was missing a few fingers, I think. (laughs) I started in 1978. And um, as you said, I didn't have female role models in the engineering chair or the production chair. But uh, I figured that I wanted to be where records were being made because I loved music so much. And I had zero interest in being an artist or a performer. So um, I knew that I could exchange something that I could do easily and well for the opportunity to be where records were being made. And that thing I could do was, was, was study. And I chose to study basic audio electronics. And uh, I became an audio technician in Hollywood, California, repairing consoles and tape machines. So I was an even more rare bird than women engineers and producers because audio technicians, there aren't as many of them. But... Taking that route was my entree into the music business, and I was working as a technician in Hollywood when Prince sent out the word in 1983 that he was looking for a technician to join him full-time in Minneapolis, and I got that job. He was my favorite artist in the world, so really it was a dream come true. I moved from L.A. to Minneapolis, and uh, Prince didn't know or didn't care that there was a difference between a technician who repairs the gear and an engineer who actually uses it. He just moved me right into the engineering chair, and that's where I wanted to be anyway. So it was very, very fortuitous. I can only imagine that we could fill this entire conversation with stories from your time with Prince. So I think I want to limit it to just one. What was one experience that you had working with Prince that changed your relationship to music? 
I suppose the very first tape that I put up in his home studio, I had just joined him. I had installed a new console. I had done some work in the room that he asked to have done. And then he had me put up a tape. And it happened to be the stereo mix of the song Darling Nikki from the album Purple Rain. And that it's a, it's a bold rock song with bold lyrics and a really exciting, exciting track. And I was alone in the room. I was waiting for him. So I put up the tape and I played it. And it kind of just blew my hair back. This guy, who I was a fan of, had just completed this track. And he had done it all on his own, just one instrument at a time. And in his home studio, his home studio was just the size of a suburban bedroom. It was nothing special. And that made me think, I need to reset everything I thought I knew about how records get made. Traditionally, records get made by you rent out a studio and you've got these expensive session musicians and you've got the artist and you've got a producer and an engineer and a mixer. You've got all these people. This is one guy in his bedroom studio, and the year is 1983, and that that record just blew me away. So I think that that was my first hint that this wasn't going to be your regular rodeo. This was going to be something really unusual. Yeah, I mean, I want to circle back to something you said earlier and how you got to be where you are and that you had um, no desire to be a musician, but that you know, your relationship to music has been a very long one and a very deep one, obviously. Um, and you wouldn't be where you are without an appreciation for music, of course. Um, and you draw this interesting distinction in the beginning of the book um, to being musical, but not a musician. Right. Um, is there a difference between how you listen versus how a musician listens? Or I guess, what does that listening entail? You know, that's a great, great question. Uh, I did try to, in this book, help the reader who might be a non-musician or might be at, the, at, uh, at least a non-professional musician to understand the process that a record maker goes through when she's evaluating performances or evaluating work she's just done or just evaluating records that she likes. What sort of thinking happens. And you might discover that you're doing a lot of this yourself. So for for me, listening has always involved scanning. This is what it feels like. Scanning through the record. If I'm hearing a record that I don't know for the first time, the very first time I hear, I hear a record, I'm scanning to look for the treats. And as I wrote about in the book, I'm scanning these dimensions. I'm listening for the rhythm. Is that my rhythm? Is that the rhythm I like? Is that the groove that's my favorite groove in the whole world? No? Okay, that's all right. That's fine. What else is there? Uh, what about the lyrics? Are these lyrics touching me in any way? Are they solving any problems for me? Are they? Are, uh, d can I relate to this lyric writer? Is, are these lyrics clever? No? Okay, well, what about the melody? How's that melody working for me? How about those chord changes? How about that harmony? If it's not that, then what about the sounds? What about the timbres? You know, the great sound of a great distorted guitar. Maybe I love the drum sounds or something. And this is all being performed automatically. It's not a conscious choice. You're just scanning, looking for, where's the music of me? Where's the music of me? Where are the elements that I like? Uh, those are the four musical elements. But in addition to that, there are also aesthetic dimensions. Like, is this a groundbreaking idea? 
Maybe I don't like any of the elements, but the idea of how they're approaching music is really exciting. Or this is a record that is, I really like it, but it reminds me of other records I've heard in the past. Maybe it's a familiar record or, or maybe it's, yeah, this is, this is my idea of how you arrange instrumentally a record or maybe, damn, you know, it's not my favorite record, but that performance, that, that vocalist is really feeling it. And I appreciate it on that level. So that's the process that I go through. I think uh, the difference between myself and the average music lover is I'm more uh, experienced with doing that, having done it for a living. So uh, that that's the process. It's not quite the same as a, as a musician's because a musician is, um, well, just like you're a sh- if you're a chef. You're a chef and you go to a restaurant and you taste food that someone else has made. So you might analyze it. What are the ingredients in this dish? And two, what were the techniques that went into making it? And could I make it? Should I make it? If I were to modify it, how would I modify it? That's a very different sort of analytic process than what the diner experiences, who just comes in and enjoys the meal. You know, music, for whatever reason, feels like something that people don't take tours in, you know? Like, Mm -hmm. you don't often invite people onto your musical street necessarily unless you're I feel like I did this a lot when I was a teenager I was like oh man here's this cool new record like you have to listen to it and then we're all you know all your friends are swapping records but you know as an adult you're kind of like well this is what I like you'll hear stuff on the radio but I was wondering if you could talk about why that is like what is it about music and like its connection to our emotions that makes it hard or makes us maybe unwilling to venture past Mm. what we like instinctively? That's such a shame. So I want to talk about two things. One is the record poll and two is the default network. So record polls are something that people do in the music business and many more people should be enjoying a record poll. So as you said, when you're young, you do share music with your friends. Sharing our musical taste is one way we show other people our identity. We're sharing our music to share our self-identity. You're saying, I belong to this tribe, I wear these clothes, I listen to this music, I am one with these people. You can go ahead and put me in this category based on the music I listen to, and I'm okay with that because this is the music of me. Nothing matters more to a teenager than the social environment. Nothing matters more. So you need to fit in and you need to fly your own flag the music you listen to is a, is a good way to do that. So we get older and we know who we are. We're established. We have a certain job. And we live in a certain place and this is who we are. And our personality is, is starting to um, solidify. But when you have a record poll, you get together with your friends and you go around the room and instead of like a song poll where you pass the acoustic guitar around and you play songs for one another, at a record poll, you play records that matter greatly to you, that you love with all your heart. The purpose is not to show other people necessarily what your taste in music is. It's to show the music that feels the most genuine and real and personal to you. So you're sharing with your friends, this is my identity, this is my heart, and Here's why. So in a record poll, you have to kind of say why. You can't say, well, I just love this song because it reminds me of being with my friends when I was in the eighth grade. No, 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 no. You have to say, what is it about 
these lyrics or this melody or this this arrangement or this design? What makes you love this so much? And barring that, you must say, what sort of feeling do you get when you listen to this record? What does it make you think of? Why is this the music of you? When people go around a circle and do that for one another, it's an intimate form of sharing. You're brave enough to say, this record means a lot to me. And your friends are learning something about you that they didn't know. And you're learning about your friends when it's their turn. You're thinking to yourself, I never would have guessed that music like that was your go-to music. You're learning more about their identity, their self-conception, and uh, it brings you closer to people. So I'd, I'd like to see more people having record pulls. I mentioned the default network. It's a neural network associated with um, our self-consciousness, our self-awareness. The default network is called that because it's believed that the default network turns on whenever we go into our own heads. So 30 to 50% of the time, this has been studied, 30 to 50% of the time, we're not focused on anything in the outside world. We're in our own heads, focused on our internal thoughts and feelings. When we do that, we're activating the default network. Now it turns out, and this has been shown in laboratory studies, when you're listening to music you like, it lights up that default network. If it's music you like, you go into your own private psyche. And when you're listening to music you dislike, the connections to the default network are actually diminished, almost like cutting off this music. No, I do not want this music to become the music of me. I will not integrate it into my sense of self. So music listening is tied up in our sense of self, our self-consciousness and our self-identity in a very immediate and uh, very, very intimate and deep way. Yeah, I thought that was so incredible. I think it explains a lot, especially how emotional people can get about music mm -hmm. or the way that, you know, people can look at paintings they don't like and be mm -hmm. like, well, I just don't like that. But if you listen to something you dislike, it just it feels really visceral, you know, and there's not a lot yeah. where I've had that experience. But when it happens, boy, it's like a physical kind of experience. It truly is. In the last chapter of the book, I have a few, a, a dozen or so vignettes from people I know, nearly all of them, musicians, but not all. I asked them to describe a record that they love with all their heart, that they fell in love with the first time they heard it and that they still love to this day. And there's a great variety of records in there. The point I wanted to make with that is, <laughs> it's like a record poll. These people are sharing a record that just makes them weak in the knees. And you can listen to that record and feel little to nothing. That makes the point that we are all unique listeners. So your listener profile will be different from mine, and that's a beautiful thing. The subtitle of this book is What the Music You Love Says About You, and it would be nice if you could give me your playlist and I could say, okay, here's, here's you. But it, it doesn't quite work that way. It's you telling me, here's me. I may talk about the dimensions of music. I may talk about uh, some chord change or, or, or just some lyric that just wipes me out. But I'd have to connect it to my life. 
um, to, to fully describe what my music reveals about me personally. Definitely. It is a different way of listening. And I, I appreciate having it broken down in this way. I feel like one of the things that you start out with that actually I think is really key to what I like and why a lot of songs don't appeal to me is when they're missing the first aesthetic dimension you talk about, which is mm. authenticity. Um, and speaking of people who don't necessarily have all that musical training, um, you started off the book with a song from this group called The Shags, and it's called I'm So Happy When You're Near. That's all I'm going to say about it. I'm so happy when you're near. It's hard to pick a time to end the song because there's, <laughs> there's no like natural ending. Um, so tell us about the shags and tell us uh, why you started off the book with this record pull above all record pulls. So the shags were three sisters, the Wiggins sisters, who lived in uh, rural New Hampshire in the 1960s. And their dad believed that they were destined to become a famous pop band. So in order to achieve that goal, he pulled them out of school. He didn't let them date or see boys. They didn't have a social life. He gave them drums, bass, and guitar, and basically locked them up in a room and said, girls, learn to play and learn to write some songs. So the father was very strict, and the girls did what they were told. And after they had a dozen or so songs, dad saved up a little bit of money, which was hard to do because uh, he didn't make a lot of money. But he saved up some money, came down to a recording studio in Boston, and they recorded an album. In uh, I think it was 1965, and that album was called Philosophy of the World. And dad thought, this is going to be it. Everyone's going everyone's gonna to love it. And the girls actually got death threats. <laughs> the recording engineers at the studio reported that they just rolled on the floor laughing. Now, they were destined for obscurity until someone found that recording. A fellow named Terry Adams from the band NRBQ managed to find that recording in the 1980s, and he had the record released on Rounder Records. When I first heard it, it was in the 80s, and it was shown to me by a record producer, my mentor, Tony Berg. And Tony said, check this out, because I hadn't heard of the Shags. And he played it for me. And what this record is to professional record makers is it's kind of a lodestar for one certain dimension of musicality. Now, the Shags have no technique whatsoever. No one's saying that they're great. They're, they're absolutely not. The reason that we listen to them is the Shags are to music what a child's finger painting is to art. It's not great art. It's not going to end up in a museum. But what you get to see when a little kid draws her house and mom and dad and her dog 
What you get to see is what she's trying to do. She's trying to say, this is my world, and I'm expressing my world with my paints, my pencils, and my crayons. And when you look at it, there's no point in analyzing it. That's not what it's about. What it's about is intentionality. What do I want you to know about me? So the shags, with no technique whatsoever, and these innocent, cloistered lyrics are expressing, here's what it's like to be a teenage girl and describe your experience musically. That pure, pure, pure intentionality, pure authenticity is uh, valued by members of the music business. So what happens when you lose that quality? You're in the studio and you're playing or maybe you're on stage and you're just going through the motions. You're such a well-trained musician that, yeah, you can, you can play anything. You don't have, you're not making any mistakes. There's no timing errors, no pitch errors. And your music is soulless and vapid, and it's not making a connection with anyone at all. It becomes the musical equivalent of bad art. There's technique there, but there's no passion. So I opened the book with the shags for a couple of reasons. One, to illustrate this dimension of authenticity, but more importantly, to let readers know this is not going to be the kind of conversation where I preach from a lofty perch and show you what good music is. You already know what good music is. It's the music you like. That's good music. I'm just going to point out things that uh, you, you might want to learn to listen for. Yeah. I mean, I, I love that distinction that you make because so often that is the perch from which sort of mm -hmm. how to listen to music, how to learn to love music, you know, best whatevers of the past 50 years, songs, albums, et cetera, you know, even rating music. I Like, I'm curious where that perspective for you comes from. Is it related to your experience being kind of an anomaly in the music business? Mm, I also started the book in the overture. I told a story about meeting Miles Davis and something he said to me. Uh, he asked if I was a musician, and I said no. And he said, that's okay. Some of the best musicians I know aren't musicians. That stuck with me my whole life. But I um, found, after many, many years in the studio, I found that I had way more musicality than I ever gave myself credit for. I found that I had stronger musical instincts than I ever believed possible. And it certainly wasn't because I could play or write or sing. It's because I was an active, passionate listener. I'm really good at listening, which sounds funny. It's like saying, yeah, I'm an expert at looking at things. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm an expert because I am so well in touch with my listener profile. It took me years to appreciate that my opinion on music was valid and that it was coming from a place that actually is shared by everyone who loves music. It's not talked about enough. It's not talked about in terms of what the audience is bringing to music, how the audience, the listeners, are actually changing what music is because, of course, all the musicians out there are working to craft something that people will buy and follow and like and stream and all that. Um, I wanted to have this conversation in this book with music lovers to let them know you know more than you think you do when it comes to the music that is the music of you. 
Yeah, I feel like a lot of us kind of know it in- intuitively, but figuring out why can be really helpful. And authenticity is an interesting one to start on, too, because it's like something is either authentic or it's not, <laughs> you know? And it's important to say that it's a subjective impression. Mm-hmm. So uh, in the in the book, Ogie and I are contrasting our perspective and what music sounds like to us. Now, for me, I'll take sloppy, bad playing that's played with gusto any day over perfect playing that has no soul or that is too careful, too stilted, too clenched. I'm listening for those performance gestures that show what the artist was feeling. Ogie doesn't like that at all. He's just as good of a listener as I am, but he's listening for technical perfection. He's listening for these performance gestures that are so perfectly controlled that it's mastery. He values that more highly than I value it, and I, of course, value my gut bucket blues. Uh, Both are good. This is not a judgment about what's better and what's worse. Both are good. I'm just pointing out that there are preferences along that dimension, and we are what we are. You you can't change... (laughs) You can't change the sorts of things that you automatically resonate with, whether it's your taste in art or music or your taste in food. You can't change it without effort and a bit of knowledge and having someone kind of walk you through um, some aspects of stimuli that you might not have noticed before. Totally. Yeah. And that's my bias showing because I also like the messiness versus the control. And that might be because I was kind of a sloppy musician. But, (laughs) (laughs) you know, the other the other qualities sort of as we walk through the book and we walk through the different elements of the listener profile do get more complex. You know, you introduce the idea of there being different axes on those. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you can talk about realism or novelty, like your preferences for one or the other do change over time and sort of generationally. Like what sounds new to me sounds different from what's new to my dad. Exactly. Um, so how can you talk about the stuff we can't control about how we're sort of not programmed exactly, but sort of pushed in certain musical directions? Yes. So the, the dimension of realism is contrasted. Well, the opposite poles on that dimension are realistic records and abstract records. I have a great preference for realistic records, and Ogie has a great preference for abstract records. What I mean by that is uh, I had mentioned earlier that when you listen to a record and you're listening to it for the first time, your brain is automatically scanning it to listen for what elements of that record might generate a dopamine release, what might feel good to you. Uh, Realism versus abstraction is connected with what we see in our mind's eye when we listen to music. I personally have a strong preference for, an automatic preference actually, to picture the band performing. When I listen to the music I love, and this has been the case since I was a little kid, when I close my eyes and I listen to music, I see the band. When I was really young, I used to picture them on the stage, but as I got older and I learned what a recording studio is, that's my go-to. And I can't listen to a single record without picturing the musician right in front of me performing, usually in the studio. So when I listen to the records I like, records that are made with traditional acoustic instruments, I can visualize it. But when I listen to the music that Ogie likes, the electronic music, the more abstract stuff, I appreciate that music greatly. I, I, on a cerebral level, 
I understand that it's great, but my mind is searching for that treat that it wants. It wants to be able to picture the players and Basically, in an abstract record, there are no players there. There are no instruments there. They're, they're all software-based, and a person programmed this piece of music. Now, the reason Ogi prefers that kind of music is that his go-to visualization is abstract shapes and colors. He'll often visualize uh, outer space or planets or things like that, and music that is not grounded in the real world makes it easier for him to have the kind of visual fantasy he wants to have. So that helps to determine your preference on this single axis. Some people don't have a preference at all. According to work that Ogi and I did, the majority of people, when they listen to their favorite music, are um, visualizing autobiographical memories, people, places, events in their lives that were important to them. So it doesn't matter if the record is modern or or not, it doesn't matter if they like that record and, and they get that visualization treat of nostalgia, they're good, they're happy. Other people envision other sorts of things, ranging from the otherworldly abstract or actually no visualization at all, all the way to the very concrete, specific visualization of the kind that I have. It seems extremely difficult to untangle even that preference for realism or abstraction from the other, right? Because if we compare, you know, kids these days listen to a lot more techno mm. than, you know, my parents' generation did, for instance. So does it come from what's in the water or, you know, how, how early can you oh. go? Where do those preferences come from? So what happens is when we're young, anytime something pleases us, it releases a little bit of feel-good neurotransmitters. It could be dopamine, or it could be norepinephrine, or acetylcholine. It could be, could be a histamine. It could be, <laughs> could be serotonin. It could be, it could be anything. But if it feels good, your nervous system automatically connects that little bit of release, that good feeling, to what it is it's hearing or tasting, or smelling, or seeing, or just whatever. Now, as we start to grow older, that process is carving, in a manner of speaking, tracks into our auditory processing circuitry. Our auditory cortex actually gets shaped to be even more receptive to the kind of music that made us happy when we were young. So that's why our tastes are constantly even though they're evolving as music evolves, they're, they're pretty grounded, pretty rooted in those early childhood experiences from childhood up through early adolescence when the uh, auditory cortex is still taking shape. So anything that makes you happy, you're going to listen for or look for again. And the reverse is also true. Anything that didn't work out for you is going to be encoded along with that feeling of aversion. Like, this is not for me. I do not like this. I don't want to be here right now. I don't want to be hearing this. And your taste is gradually going to be shaped along those lines. I did mention earlier that you can change your taste, but it involves someone usually taking you by the hand and walking you down a new musical street, as Prince used to call it, and pointing out what to listen for. So my students did that for me with uh, American Hardcore. Uh, I had never... <laughs> 
I just totally ignored it. I never paid any attention to it before. But they taught me, here's what you listen for. Here's why it's great. And having them share their love and their passion for certain tones and, and, and gestures and styles made me think, oh, this is so good. And I like it now. Not the deep-rooted love that I have for my R&B and soul music, but I like it. And uh, a student also did that for me with electronic music and techno. He, he said, let me show you what's great about it and why it's great. And that worked for me. He showed me, here's how it works. And I, I appreciate it more now than I ever did before. Still don't have the burning love, but I like it more than I did before. Yeah, that's definitely true. I had to have my hand held through techno as well. And I found that house music was more my preference mm. because then there is, there's a lot more soul sampling, actually. Mm. Um, one of my favorite dimensions that you talk about, timbre, um, it's one of the musical ones. So we have melody, we have lyrics, we have rhythm, and then we have timbre. And I would love to go through every single one, but I want to zero in on timbre because I feel like it's not obvious um, necessarily. And it's really hard to describe. You make the point that um, the way that someone will ask you to change the timbre of something comes out in all kinds of weird ways. (laughs) Um, So I want to ask you about that. But first, I want to play an example. I think a lot of people know this one. We're going to start with Johnny Cash doing Hurt. The needle tears the hole The old familiar sting Try to kill it all away But I remember everything What have I become? My sweetest friend Everyone I know goes away in the air And you could have it all My empire of dirt I will let you down I will make you Hard to hit. Pause on that one. (laughs) It's so good. Um, And to contrast it, here's the original record, Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails. cut it off there. Yeah. Can you talk more intelligently than I about what makes Johnny Cash's version heartbreaking? (laughs) Imagine being Trent Reznor and hearing the Johnny Cash version. Uh, In an interview, Trent said that it it made him cry. (laughs) 
That's that's powerful. So when we when we listen to this in Trent Reznor's version, we can hear in the timbre of his voice. This is a fairly young man. He's really hurting really badly. And you don't know, is he just having a bad day? Is he having a bad day? <laughs> or is he really in trouble? But you feel, at least maybe maybe you don't, but I, I do because I'm older, the compulsion to want to comfort him. But when Johnny Cash sings those same lines, I hurt myself today. And when he says, I remember everything, that's an older man and he doesn't need comforting. He knows himself better. He has the weight of his life behind him. He has twice the number of experiences as a younger man. And he means exactly what he says. And it's chilling because you get the sense that no one can stop him and that he's going to do it again. Whereas with Trent, you you get the sense that there could be redemption there, maybe even by the end of the song. But with an older man, no, it doesn't feel that way. So the timbre alone, and humans are really experts, all of us are experts at telling what's going on with people by the timbre in their voices. The timbre alone is giving us the backstory of the singer and changes our impression of the song. Even though the, the lyrics are exactly the same, the chords are the same, the melody's the same, but the timbre is different. Yeah, I mean, it's also, the when we were talking about sort of what you visualize with the song, um, the, I think the music video for Hurt for Johnny Cash is also perfect because it's tuning exactly into that. You know, it's just present day video of Johnny Cash initially singing it and then we hit the chorus and he says I remember everything and we flash back to archival footage of a young Johnny Cash it's just like it's devastating it's perfect <laughs> um yeah I can only imagine being Trent Reznor and just being like well I'm just never gonna perform that song again <laughs> maybe yeah. when he's 70 <laughs> yeah it's 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 great when that happens if you're a musician but it also changes how listeners are going to hear the song from now on. A similar thing happened with Prince with Nothing Compares to You. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a song he gave away. He wrote it for the band The Family, one of his protege bands, and um, nothing happened with it. And then Sinead O'Connor came along and had a massive successful hit with that same song. Um, Prince took it back in the sense that he started performing it himself on stage, but he hadn't realized how powerful it was until someone else actually did it. Yeah, that's, um, I'm going to play just a clip of that because that's like, that's my go-to karaoke song at the end of a night. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's just devastating. It's been seven hours and 15 days Since you took your love away Take 
also really difficult for one for me to stop. <laughs> um, and I think also just a really good song that I think illustrates the difference between a song and a record. Mm-hmm. You know, in the hands of different artists and different musicians and even different listeners, it can mean something so completely different. Yes, Sinead did bring something different to that performance. She slowed it down a little bit. Um, In Prince's original version that I recorded with him, we recorded it very quickly in one day. Uh, It was a very passionate performance, but it wasn't a heart-wrenching performance. He had written it for someone else to perform, and he, uh, he... scribbled it off really quickly the way he did. He was such a great songwriter. But Sinead uh, listened to the song and recognized there's a better record in here (laughs) than what you put out. I'm going to re-record this and I'm going to package it, package these words, this melody in a slightly different way and make a different record from it to see if I can get across some other points or some other emotions that you didn't necessarily deliver on your original version. This is the job of a record producer is to turn songs into records. It's very, very difficult. It's one thing to do it alone in your bedroom, but it's another thing altogether to make a living at it. Uh, Audiences um, are impossible to predict. (laughs) They are. And I think that's why, like, I can listen to a record like that. And for me, I'm like, yes, all of these things are working for me. It's authentic. I love the melody. I love the lyrics. I think that the rhythm is really interesting. Oh, my God, her timbre. Mm. I think everything is working for me. But that's not going to be true for, you know, the person next to me. Yeah, that's that's the great, great mystery to me. You could line up five people, and if you could scan their brains all simultaneously and see what's going on as they listen to the exact same record, you'd see that some people are releasing dopamine left, right, and center, and they're so happy, and their default network is kicked in, and they're in their private place, and they're soaking it up, and they're they're relishing the record. Others would be like, well, okay, I, I appreciate it on a cerebral level, maybe, you know, cognitively I can appraise it and say, yeah, this sounds pretty good. And then other people might be, this does nothing for me. I can't wait until it's over. And then there might be one person who says, I hate this. Please make it stop. It's the exact same signal. But what's different is these brains, these brains that were shaped over experiences of of music listening to decide what's working for them and what isn't. Yeah. I mean, it's so fascinating to me that, you know, you've spent your whole life listening to music, studying it in different forms, and you're still baffled. <laughs> like, there's just, that's what makes it so interesting. Like, there's just, yeah, who knows? <laughs> yeah, so the job of scientists is to describe the natural world, to observe, to measure, to analyze, to write it up, to describe it and say, here's the truth about the world. The really great thing about music and art and so many things is that the human brain is so damned complex, there are so many variables. So to sit down as a scientist and say, here's how it works. I can predict who's going to like this record and who won't. I can tell you exactly what's going to go on with them when they hear it. I think that that is a Cretan's errand. Uh, It's going to be nearly impossible. There's so many different reasons why we like what we like that it would be pretty hard to say for sure, here's a record that someone is going to absolutely love. Well, I feel like I've um, cheated a little bit 
you've pulled in the book some of my favorite records. Like mm. some of these would be my Desert Island pulls anyway. Oh, wow. What would be one of your pulls today? You know, I'm not saying forever or any, but like, what are you feeling today? Oh, goodness. Just today, um, recently a student told me about a Bill Frizzell record, the guitarist who plays a Telecaster. We were actually talking about timbre, and he said, oh, Telecaster is such a hard guitar to play. He said, you should check out this Bill Frizzell record called, the album is called Good Dog, Happy Man. And the song Shenandoah is on there, which is a classic, classic song. And Bill plays it on guitar. My student, Jeremy, told me, he said, this is this has become one of Bill Frizzell's signature songs. The song, <laughs> the performance of Shenandoah by Bill Frizzell, just one instrument, it's just the Telecaster guitar, and he pulls so much music out of every single note. Just guy with a guitar. And the melody is so strong, and his rhythm is so heartfelt. His, his, his performance has that authenticity that I like, yet it's technically perfect. It's a record that just recently wiped me out. I pulled it up so that I can... I've never heard this before, so we'll see mm. whether it ticks my boxes. That's beautiful. Now we can contrast that with the shags, that uh, that long first verse and chorus. It's all just just Bill on guitar, and here's a man with a guitar, and he's saying, "I'm gonna play something for you," and he does with perfect virtuoso technique that took years to master, and that is pretty unparalleled. But he's coming from the same place that Betty Helen and Dorothy Wiggin came from where they had their instruments in their hands, and they're saying, I want to tell you something. Here's what I want to tell you. And they're hacking away at those instruments. But actually, when it comes to the shags, uh, they actually believed that they were playing properly. They would, in the middle of a take, they'd stop themselves, and they'd, they'd say to one another, oh, you're doing it wrong, and they'd correct it. As far as they were concerned, this is music, and this is how music goes. Nothing about the shags in Bill Frizzell is the same except for the seed, except for the seed that was planted, the seed of intentionality. I want to tell you something on my instrument. We have links in the show notes to Susan Rogers and Ogie Ogus's new book, This Is What It Sounds Like, What the Music You Love Says About You. And one of the coolest parts of reading the book are the record pulls that crop up almost every chapter, sometimes multiple times a chapter, which are all available on the book's website, thisiswhatitsoundslike.com. There is even a page where you can pull your own record, but you'll have to say a little bit about what it means to you. 
We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. <laughs>